The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. Asian equities rally with Japan's Nikkei leading the charge, boosted by chip stocks, while Bitcoin tops $44,000 for the first time since April 2022 as optimism grows over a potential ETF. U.S. job openings fall to their lowest level in over two and a half years. In the latest sign, rate hikes are loosening the historically tight labor market. Bank of America's Brian Moynihan tells CNBC the economy will rebound once rates ease. Rates coming down don't help. But on the other hand, stabilization of rates means the economy will then kick in and activity will pick back up. Apple's market cap closes above $3 trillion for the first time since August, with shares of the iPhone maker up almost 50% this year. And Brussels plans to delay tariffs on EV sales between the UK and EU, while Tesla's strike action spreads from Sweden to Denmark, casting a shadow over the bloc's electric ambitions. Markets got all the dovish cues that they wanted from the jolts report yesterday, effectively telling us that some of that tightness in the labour market is starting to fade. But uh, you've had a very cautious move after what has been a fairly bumper trading month of November that extended into December. And investors now just pulling back slightly, still a raft of jobs data out later this week from the ADP today to initial jobless tomorrow and the payrolls come Friday. So the market is still just waiting it out for the final piece of the puzzle when it comes to this labour market story. But that said, there was some movement. You can see Apple, for instance, was one of the big movers. The NASDAQ itself up about a third of a percent and tech back in focus as investors took stock of what is likely to be a rate cutting cycle next year. Again, it's the full pivot that markets are waiting for. But in terms of the expectations now, there are bets coming that the first cut will happen by March next year. That's now around 64% according to the CME Group's FedWatch tool. So there is repositioning taking place. In terms of what you had at a sector level, I think the market uh, looking very closely to at the economic landing just what that story is going to look like out of the sectors, energy leading to the downside. And that is a fascinating reading to where many now are seeing that journey around energy demand. Don't forget China giving us some weaker cues yet again. So the market, I think, just watching the international demand story, but also closely watching what it's now seeing in terms of the workforce in the United States. But uh, it was a fade on the Dow, as you can see, down two-tenths of a percent. Uh, Goldman Sachs moving to the downside, even though uh, Apple managed to push firmer and uh, above that three trillion mark. I mean, quite a stunning performance. First time it's been there since August over the summer months. Uh, the shares climbing, as you can see, 2.1 percent, uh, getting to 193, 42, uh, 40, yes, 42 there on the markets. Uh, so we briefly saw this level touched uh, a couple of times over the course of time, August, uh, briefly in December 2022, an intraday trade as well. So it, it is seen as certainly a milestone, but don't forget the news has not been that upbeat from Apple itself. The numbers, revenue seen down 3% on the prior year, warnings about uh, annual revenue growth in the December quarter, now uh, the all-important uh, seasonals approaching. So not exactly the most confident reading that we've had from the company itself, yet the market's still pushing 
it higher to this extraordinary market cap. I want to take you to Treasuries because we had that slight pullback again on some of these yields. We're now 4.19 on that 10-year on the US Treasury. 4.61 is what we've got on the two-year. And uh, many in the market looking at a sympathy reaction across other bond yields across to the Asia markets and also in Europe. Uh, the dollar story, let's just take a quick look at how we're trading. We're 126.05 on the sterling dollar. So cable supported this morning up about a tenth of a percent. Euro dollar, it is uh, just hugging uh, the level below the 108 line. Dollar firmer versus the Japanese yen, 147.19. Again, it's a market now trying to judge whether we've got all central banks that are being going to be pivoting next year, that uh, at this point, uh, some of the weakness we've seen in the dollar may also be compensated by other currencies from here. But let's get a check of the Asian equities and how they were doing with JP out of Singapore. JP. Uh, yes, good morning to you guys out there in Europe, Karen. And yes, uh, so far markets in Asia also looking quite chipper so far today. It's not just equities, also the FX market looking uh, quite confident, firming up for the most part with a few exceptions. You touched on the Japanese yen a while ago, looking a bit flat, a bit uh, just a bit uh, flat for the most part as compared to other currencies in in, in the region. Also because the what, what the deputy governor of the Bank of Japan did say that they still want to make sure there's an orderly and timely exit actually from that ultra from that ultra loose monetary policy. Uh, and, 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 that, and, that, and that monetary policy is very accommodative, which means we might keep rates at the, at the, near those near negative territories for a little bit longer. So the Japanese are one of those standouts. The dollar, uh, we also have the, uh, the Chinese yuan, as we mentioned also a while ago. We are seeing continued buying action from some of these banks in China to help prop up the currency there. But we're seeing the onshore yuan actually still a bit flat to the downside as well as a bit sluggish. But the offshore yuan taking on a bit of strength actually so far in today's session. But across the board, you're you're seeing everything from the Aussie dollar to the Korean one actually taking in a bit of strength so far um, today. Also on the part uh, on the back of that weakening dollar index also, or that softening dollar index that's just giving them a boost. And also giving equities across uh, the Asia-Pacific region uh, quite a little bit of strength also and a bit of more firm footing for the most part. We'll take a look at, uh, at how some of these stocks are actually doing here. You're seeing here the, everything from, from, the, uh, from the Australian uh, ASX 200, all the other Hang Seng in Hong Kong doing quite well. The Shanghai Composite a bit, a little bit uh, more sluggish and a little bit more hesitant, also because they're also taking in so that, that report from Moody's where they actually cut the credit outlook for China too negative because of some of the concerns that efforts to prop up the property sector in China might actually lead to a bit of weakness for the, for the economy there, and thus keeping them just a little bit more cautious compared to some of their, um, some of their uh, counterparts from the Nikkei 225 all the way down to the ASX 200. I do want to bring up, though, the fact that Indian markets are looking quite rosy today, and it seems they might be close to hitting a bit of a milestone. The Nifty 50 out in Mumbai actually trading about, uh, about uh, two tenths of a percent higher so far today and they could be on track actually to, to locking in their fifth straight year of gains and they've seen they've seen their market capitalization grow quite significantly and actually attempting to and flirting with hitting that four trillion dollar mark in terms of total market cap if they actually hit that that will see them lock their cement their place as the fifth largest stock exchange or equity market in the entire world just barely trailing that of Hong Kong and so far just locking in what's been a very rosy last couple of years also in the back of the removal of some political risk because we did see that the ruling party of Prime Minister Narendra Modi did win three key state elections, which means their, uh, their, their at least their, 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 their place actually in terms of ruling the subcontinent could actually be secured for the most part. And that also removing that political risk that seems to be contributing some confidence in the stock market in India and a pretty nifty session for the Indian board so far in today's session. Karen. JP, thank you so much for the update. I appreciate you joining us today.
U.S. job openings hit their lowest level since March 2021 in the latest JOLTS report, which showed openings at a seasonally adjusted level of just over 8.7 million, well below estimates. The decline brings the ratio of vacancies to available workers to 1.3 to 1, close to pre-pandemic levels. Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan told CNBC higher rates are slowing down deal-making. The activity has been muted because of the volatility around the future. And so people, it's hard to commit to buy a company if you're not sure what's going to happen next. And, and, that's, and as that becomes clear, and the cost of credit has gone up dramatically for companies, the cost of financing is up you know, five, 600 basis points uh, relative, which pushes up in the low double digits for some of these uh, deals. That slows everybody down because it's going to take either a lot more equity not to have to pay that financing cost or a lot less price, and the sellers don't always want to sell that. Let's get to Carl Weinberg, Chief Economist, High Frequency Economics. Carl, great to have you on board with us today to break down this, the numbers from yesterday. The first batch of jobs data that we're getting this week and nothing in it really to spook those who position now around rate cuts for next year. What did you make of the jobs? Well, the economy is weakening, that's for sure. And uh, it doesn't seem to be headed into a recession. It just looks like it's slowing down, which is what you would expect after all the monetary tightening we've seen, the withdrawal of fiscal policy, the period of uh, declining real wages, which uh, so far um, uh, is just recently reversed. Um, but we have our eye out for weaknesses, particularly in the financial sector. Um, looking at the consumer debt numbers that will be out tomorrow, I think they're probably more interesting than the employment numbers because we'll get a sense about how far the consumer has stuck their necks out uh, trying to uh, buy stuff on time when interest rates are so high. And that's that's a risk. The consumers, though, are now really expecting they have employment, that they have prospects out there. And if you look at the, the employment openings, 8.73 million for the month. The market was setting up for a number about 9.4 million. Are we finally seeing credit costs catch up with a lot of companies and they're simply not seeking the same amount of workers that they have in the past? Well, it's interesting, you know, Karen, when we look at uh, the impact of higher interest rates, we focus so much on the high, higher cost of borrowing and what that means for companies. But um, we also have to look at the, the, the payback from the higher interest rates. You know, higher interest rates means that people who have bonds are getting more income. People who have bank deposits are getting more income. And if that money is not spent, then that means there's more savings in the economy that can be harnessed for investment. So it's not necessarily all dark and gloomy for companies. You know, they need to focus right now on filtering their investment strategies so that the, the investments that they make have a high enough rate of return on investment to justify borrowing at these rates. And that shouldn't be too hard because real interest rates really still aren't that high right now. You know, what happens, I think, when interest rates go up is uh, as much of a positive for investment as a negative. We get more efficient investment, we get more productive investment, and therefore we get more GDP growth in the longer term. So it's not a disaster. Companies are paying more, but companies also, other companies, financial companies are taking more in, and people and companies are saving more, and that's supporting investment spending. Oh, but we also know there's been a lot of excess in recent years. I mean, the technology segment that has had pretty free access to capital for the last number of years now having to take stock. And that was a story we started at out 23, uh, talking about the fact that these tech companies had to cut back and, and reach for profitability. It was quite stunning to see Spotify still on that journey, even just in recent weeks, taking even more job cuts into the equation. What do you make of the further pressure now coming through to companies, though, because they have been in an excess world for so long? 
Yeah, what an interesting world we live in, Karen. I mean, you hit a lot of nails on the head there. You know, uh, deals are not going to happen anymore just because the money is free, right? Deals are going to have to make more sense because they need to get over a higher bar in order to raise the cash for it at a, at a profitable rate. So that's one aspect of it. Uh, technology is certainly cutting back, and leverage technology is, is paying out more interest. And yeah, there are going to be some slowdowns there. The stock market, as we know, is dominated by technology technology companies. So for equity investors, this is not a good thing. It suggests the indices are vulnerable. But having said that, the economy is not the stock market. And the economy is a lot of other companies that do a lot of other things other than what technology is doing. And a downturn in technology doesn't necessarily mean that, say, manufacturing, which has been suffering for a long time, can't have a rebound based on investment, based on conversion to green technologies, uh, electrification of the auto fleet, and so forth. Right? There's a lot of stuff that happens in the economy that's not technology. So it's bad for the stock market, sure, but there's the rest of the economy. From an economist's point of view, it's not a formula for a recession. Right. And Carl, one of the factors the market's been looking at as they weigh up whether it's going to be a soft or hard landing is that the employment market has been so firm. As we move through to the rest of the data this week, from ADP to the initial jobless claims to payrolls, do you think there's going to be just confirmation that we are getting past this wage price spiral that the Fed's been so concerned about? Well, you know, I was just teaching my Econ 101 students over at our local college today about how the Phillips curve sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't. And uh, recently, it, uh, particularly these last few months, it hasn't been working very well because inflation is coming down quite dramatically, but uh, unemployment rate is not uh, going up. So, um, you know, the Fed follows its, its, you know, does what it has to do and it worries about the employment rate. I, I'm not worried about a wage price spiral. And the figure I'm going to be looking at very carefully in Friday's employment report uh, is going to be the hourly wages figure and to get a sense of uh, where that's going. We're down to a 4% handle and dropping uh, on that. And of course, productivity gains have been so strong that when we get the unit labor cost data, Today, all right, we're going to see unit labor costs falling in the third quarter, which is to say that it's not wages that are pushing up prices. It's excess demand that's been pushing up prices, and that's been fueled by a burst of monetary creation. And the real value of that monetary creation that was created during the pandemic to get us out of the big hole we were in, that value of excess money in the economy is coming down in real terms because prices are higher and because because of QT. So I think the economy is slowing. It's not responding as much to interest rates as to other things. And inflation is coming down. And I'm not so sure that we need to see the unemployment rate rise very far from where it is right now. As long as we continue to grow a trend one to 2%, we don't create jobs faster than the labor force is growing. We can stay at full employment, which is effectively where we are, and still continue to grow and not have inflation, have price stability. I'm optimistic that there is a good outcome from all of this that's not only possible, but even likely as long as the central banks don't hike rates too much. Carl, this sounds like Goldilocks. Can I ask you about the rate path for next year then? Because how much work will the Fed have to do in terms of cutting to keep everything intact that you're just de describing there? 
Yeah, so there are two questions. One is what the Fed will do, and the other is what the Fed should do. All right. If I were sitting at the Fed, I would be very wary of the rise in real interest rates that happens as inflation slows. And I don't think the Fed needs to see a recession in order to justify cutting interest rates by the time we get to the spring of next year, which is where the market is pointed and where I think is a sensible place to start thinking about it. But you know, Karen, this decline in inflation means real interest rates are going up, and it's real interest rates that can kill the economy, not nominal interest rates. So I have my eye on rising real interest rates as a catalyst, not only for the Fed, but for goodness sake, look at what's happening in Europe with a two-handle on inflation in Germany and less than 1% inflation in Italy. And think about what's happening to real interest rates over there. And at the same time, all right, central bank data are showing that bank lending to the economy is declining. We have a credit crunch going on, and we have a recession as a result of that credit crunch that's already begun. That's where you want to look for the more aggressive rate cutting. That's where I should think that we would see them starting to talk about it as soon as they're meeting next week. Some of the Fed speakers have been talking about financial tightening and what that is doing across the economy, but the hawks are still talking about the potential for more rate hikes from here if inflation does not fall back. Do you think those hawks are misplaced at this stage from Kashkari to, to Bowman? I've been uh, at odds with the Hawks for a long time. I've thought for a long time that their uh, fears about inflation are misplaced, that the underlying theory that they are reflecting is that the one-time burst of monetary creation and fiscal stimulus that we saw in the United States and around the world during the pandemic, that that one-time shock could lead to a permanent, permanent, um, a permanent persistent uh, price increases to ongoing inflation. And I don't see that, Karen. We've had a one-time increase in the money supply that generated a one-time increases in prices, and now it's over. Prices are flattening out right now around the world. And as they flatten out, the year-over-year changes in prices that are inflation, they're going to drop toward zero, or at least toward target, if not to zero. And in the case of Europe or the UK, below zero, if we get a credit crunch and a um, uh, uh, and a deep recession that follows that. So. I think the Hawks right now are have a hard case to prove. You know, the assertion that the last few tenths of a percent of inflation are going to be the most difficult, that has no basis in fact or experience or theory. And the observation is that prices are stabilizing now across the board. And that, to my mind, sets a course for monetary policy in the new year. That's probably going to involve uh, not a good bit, but a, a, subs a not insignificant amount of interest rate reduction. Carl, I want to just uh, tap into your view on how the U.S. consumer is holding up to uh, the wash-up of Thanksgiving and uh, Cyber Week telling us that Americans are still spending, but a lot of it is taking place online. What subtleties are you now seeing? Do you think consumer behavior is just slowly turning around thanks to higher credit costs and some of the weakening we're seeing across the economy? Yeah, Karen, you hit the word. You hit the word. The the story right on the head there. Slowly turning around. All right, consumers are just waking up to the fact that they're financing their spending by running up their credit cards, and that the interest on those credit cards are over the top, out of control, off the hook right now. And uh, that's going to lead to, I think, a retrenchment in consumer spending as we get into the new year. Now, is that enough to cause a recession? I don't know. 
Right? We've never seen anything quite like this before. I can guess it'll certainly cause a slowdown, but is it enough to throw the economy into recession? Right now, our hypothesis at high-frequency economics is that it won't cause a recession, but it will lead to a slowdown, and that's our forecast for the new year. But the risk is, and I agree it's a non-trivial risk, that consumers get into trouble. We've seen figures out of the New York Fed that show that delinquencies on credit cards are up, that debt burdens are up and uh, real incomes have just started coming back again and not by nearly enough to cover some of the increases in the debt burdens that we're seeing. So credit to the household sector, consumer credit, credit cards, that's where the downside risk is. That's where the risk to this Goldilocks forecast is. And I'm watching it. But until we have a change in facts, I'm not prepared to predict that it's all going to come, that the wheels are going to come off the bus. Carl, it's great to have a focus going into next year, isn't it? And, uh, and potentially important implications for the banks too. Thank you so much for joining us today. Carl Weinberg with us, Chief Economist, High Frequency Economics. Top Wall Street CEOs will hit out at plans for higher capital requirements and new regulation as they appear before the Senate Banking Committee later today, according to pre-prepared testimonies. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon will warn that the proposed Basel endgame rule would, quote, fundamentally alter the U.S. economy. While City's Jane Fraser will say the plans risk upending the U.S. financial system in response to isolated failures at regional lenders. You can check out more of our interview with the Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan over at CNBC.com. Coming up on the show, EU lawmakers are set to finalise the bloc's first set of rules regulating artificial intelligence. We'll discuss what to expect. Plus, strike time at Tesla. Denmark's largest trade union joins Tesla workers in neighbouring Sweden in coordinated strike action against the carmaker. We'll have more on this later in the hour. And our coverage from the COP28 summit in Dubai continues. We'll hear from the CEO of Sengobayan. Tune in for that interview at 9.30 CET. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. The crypto comeback rolls on as Bitcoin tops $44,000 for the first time since April 2022 and Ether hits its highest level since May of the same year. Crypto investors are increasingly confident of a spot Bitcoin ETF winning SEC approval. Anticipated rate cuts around the world are also expected to see fresh money flow into this space. Elon Musk's artificial intelligence startup XAI is seeking to raise up to $1 billion in fresh capital, according to an SEC filing. It shows the company has already brought in some $135 million and has binding agreement with those four investors to purchase the remaining shares. XAI says its mission is, quote, to understand the true nature of the universe, adding its chatbot dubbed Grok will answer questions that most other chatbots refuse to. Interesting, I'll have to pitch a few questions. Well, EU lawmakers are seeking to hammer out the final details today of what would be the bloc's landmark AI Act, 
the world's first comprehensive bill of AI rules and regulations. However, internal disagreements over regulating foundation models or how AI models are trained could see the act stopped in its tracks. France, Germany and Italy have all voiced concerns that regulating European AI startups too tightly would see them lose more ground to their US counterparts. Speaking to CNBC at the Slush Tech Summit in Helsinki last week, the CEO of DeepL, a German AI translation startup, told CNBC he thinks some form of regulatory restraints are inevitable. Regulation is still something very new to AI and we still are figuring out together even with our customers on how to actually employ AI and how to do that in a good way rather than in a bad way. Um, and this is, this is why I think it's going to be hard to formulate regulations right now. I think the market uh, is going to need a little bit longer to get to meaningful regulation. Um, but in general, I think, I think we're going to have to put some limits on the technology. Obviously, it, it is a very powerful technology and it can be misused. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.